Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. The topic of usability is very important to medical device design and development and ultimately product success in the marketplace. And it's a confusing topic at times. Good news, I've got Isabella Schmidt, a regulatory affairs consultant with Proxima CRO, joining me on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Excited for this episode. As you've probably picked up, I'm pretty excited about all these episodes. But this is some of the most fun that I get to have in my role at Greenlight Guru. I get to talk with industry experts on some hot topics, things that are really important for medical device professionals. And today's topic and guests are certainly within that that spirit as well. So joining me is a recurring voice and maybe somewhat familiar voice to those of you who have been avid listeners to the Global Medical Device Podcast. I have Isabella Schmidt. Isabella is a regulatory affairs consultant with Proxima Clinical Research. So, so Isabella, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's always nice to talk to you. Absolutely. And we're a little bit, I mean, we're, as you and I are talking, we were, Greenlight was in uh, Houston last week at the True Quality Roadshow. So folks, uh, definitely check that out. We got some some additional roadshow events planned for the rest of the year. So just type in Greenlight Guru True Quality Roadshow and you know, you'll be taken to the page and see all the other locations and sites that we'll be visiting throughout the rest of the year. And I know Proxima has been a huge part of that. So Isabella, thank you to you and to the Proxima team for your um, contributions and collaboration on the roadshow events. Yeah, I'll be at the event on in Boston on April 2nd, I think it is. All right. Well, this should be live before then. So folks, uh, <laughs> come meet Isabella in Boston in April at the Greenlight Guru True, True Quality Roadshow. Um, going to have to hold back the masses. <laughs> she does sign autographs <laughs> if you ask nicely. <laughs> she may or may not have eight by tens of her face that she signs when she does so too. I guess you'll have to go to Boston to find out if I'm telling you the truth or if I just made that up. But anyway, I digress before we even get started. But really hot topic that I know you're passionate about is usability. And I think this is a confusing topic for a lot of people. So probably a good one to dive into for a little bit. So probably a good place to start uh, before we dive into too many details, Isabella, is what is usability and why should I care? I guess there is a recurring theme in all the conversations we have. I'm always talking about how to align, um, you know, business slash design slash marketability um, all together um, and obviously regulatory um, all together so that, you know, your product and your company are as successful as they can be. And so usability is another important part of that because, you want to make sure that you're making a device that people can use. Um, so you want to start with usability pretty early on. I know that on a couple of conversations we've had, John, we've discussed about um, design controls, which you know often starts off with your user needs. And so 
You want to start off with your user needs, but in your user needs, you want to also think about who is my user and what are they used to looking at and what might be appealing to this user. And you want to make sure that you design a device that is intuitive to whoever your user may be. Um, and so doing that really early on and throughout development is really important um, because you don't want to get to the end where you think you're at design freeze and then realize that you've made a device that all of your users is, don't really want to use or they find it confusing to use because it's not what they're typically used to seeing. Just real quick, one example, um, I was talking to someone in the office over here recently about a device that was, I think it was an EpiPen. And you know how insulin pens often have, I think it's the top of the insulin pen, it's orange where you sort of push in um, and then you put the needle wherever mm -hmm. it goes in your sub-Q fat. Well, the EpiPen was sort of the reverse of that, where the orange part, I think, was the part that you wanted to put on your leg. And then the push part was blue, I think. And so people were messing up and stabbing their finger because they thought the orange part was the part that you push down, you know. So if you have a, a population who's used to saying, okay, the orange part is the part that you push down, then they're pushing their finger down on the needle. And so that was kind of sort of a usability human factor type of error um, in the design of that EpiPen that I assume they went back and fixed after they did a bunch of the testing for that. So that's one example of, you know, understanding the types of users that you have and the types of products that they may be using to make sure that you don't run into these issues where they think they're used to using it a certain way and the, the way that you've designed it is not as sort of contrary to what their intuition tells them. Yeah, and I think that's a really good example um, to, to sort of illustrate what usability is all about. You know, and, and certainly want to get into to the details, but I think there's a lot of confusion on on this topic. These are some of the things that, that I hear. I, I think for the most part, folks have embraced this idea of design controls, you know, especially since it's you know been into effect now for like twenty, uh, well, yeah, twenty. Oh no, wait, maybe more than that, like thirty years almost. Or my math is off. I'm not quite thirty years, but like twenty. Regardless, we'll twenty some years. <laughs> I, I'm doing some bad math today, but anyway, it's been in, in place for decades. So. For multiple generations of medical device professionals, design controls has been, whether you like it or not, uh, accepted as a way of life. Uh, I think, you know, to follow somewhat in chronological order, the, the next thing that I think we as a medical device industry have grown to accept, not necessarily love, but realize that this is part and parcel to design and development of new devices is risk management. Again, I think we have a long way to go there. But then I think a little bit later to the conversation comes this topic of human factors and usability and all that sort of thing. And I think the confusion lies in that people perceive usability as yet another thing that they have to do in the design and development of products that's yet more busy work and more paperwork above and beyond what they're already doing from a design control perspective, above and beyond what they're already doing from a risk management perspective. And my belief is that's a myth. Uh, I guess I'll put you on the spot. Do you believe that to be a truth or a myth? 
I think um, I agree with you. It's a myth because it's something that they should be doing um, anyway. I mean, design controls is also right. But the concept of what they're doing, um, one would hope that they were doing this during design anyway. Otherwise, they're designing a device that they think um, is cool and useful or whatever, but their intended user, whoever they're planning on selling this to you, may not. And so... You know, usability is something and human factors engineering is something that you should be doing throughout the entire design process that should go into your risk management and your design controls. Because again, you're designing this device for that intended user to meet their needs. And if you're not designing it for that intended user, then you're going to have a problem when you try to get to market. You know, and so when you're talking about risk management, you really want to consider again, what's what's intuitive to this person, but you know, what are the critical tasks associated with using this device? And are any of is anything in the design of this device could be mitigated essentially to reduce any possible user errors that could occur, um, especially if it's a critical user error that could cause harm or make the device non-functional to some degree. And those are the types of things that you really want to focus on with specifically yeah. usability yeah. testing. Because, you know, those, you don't need to go through every sort of like, oh, well, they could, you know, poke themselves in the eye. Let's make sure, I mean, well, you want to make sure they don't do that. But, you know, you really want to focus on those critical tasks that could result in harm or, you know, a failure of the device ultimately based upon a user error and make sure in whatever testing that you're doing that you're making sure that that doesn't happen. But usability should be conducted throughout the process. And it's not just, you know, a lot of people think, you know, in the usability process, that it's that sort of design validation part where you do your summative evaluation and all of that. But that's that's not all that usability is. It should be done earlier on where you're you're talking to your potential user and you're doing like cognitive walkthroughs with them or, you know, placing it in front of them and saying, well, how would you like this? You know, if it's a screen, like for software example, what, what would you like this to look like? You know, so that yeah. you don't sort of close or you know, in the wrong corner from where they're used to seeing it, things like that to get feedback from your actual user so that you're designing the best possible device that you can design without, you know, going through multiple, you know, iterations where you just get stuck in a perpetual perfection loop. Getting your users to give you feedback can also help from that recurring because if you're adding these bells and whistles to the device that they don't care about and just ultimately going to make it more confusing, why waste your time? Yeah, I mean... You can take a breath now. I mean, uh, folks, Isabella is very, very passionate about this topic, and and I share her passion. And let let me put it in my words: If I'm um, on the quest to design and develop a medical device, I better damn sure know what problem I'm trying to solve. And knowing what problem I'm trying to solve involves understanding how my product is ultimately going to be used. And you know. I'm not a doctor and no, I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn last night. Some of you might get that joke. It's a bad one. I tell bad jokes, but, but who am I? You know, yeah, I'm an, an engineer that's been in working on medical device product development for 22 years, but who am I to know how this product is actually going to be used in a clinical setting? I mean, there are some folks listening and may say, I'm a medical doctor. Of course I know. Great. Uh, and that's terrific. And you represent one voice of user it's good to understand a representative voice of your user population and, and understand the situations in which your product are going to be used. And the earlier that you do that, the better off your entire design and development process is going to be 
frankly, the smoother it's going to be and the faster it's going to be. And, and I know some executives might be saying our, our development efforts take too long to begin with. Well, great. You should embrace this concept of usability because it will ensure better success of your product in the marketplace while also mitigating the risk. Being you from going down into like design holes where nobody really cares about whatever bell and whistle you're adding to it. The other thing is, I guess to your point about the medical doctors um, who, you know, say, oh, I, I would use this device in my practice. Um, one of the companies that um, I've worked with and met, they coined this term. I don't know if they actually did, but they used this term founderitis. And so when you come up with an idea, you obviously think it's a good idea, right? Because it's your idea. You know, just like if you have a baby, you think it's the prettiest baby in the world. But you want people to tell you if your baby's ugly or if your idea isn't good, right? You want to be able to be objective in this world so that you're not designing a device that you think is great, but again, nobody else really cares about. Well, I mean, some people may not like it if you call their baby ugly, but um, but but as a medical device, well, before you entered in a beauty pageant, maybe. Yeah, well, yeah, good good point. So, but as medical device professionals, I mean, I hope this is why you're in this space. But but the reason I'm in this space is is uh, I want to improve the quality of life, and the way that I do that uh, historically has been through you know, designing and developing and introducing products that are going to make a difference uh, in the lives of patients. And if I have one user, one doctor who will use my product, did I improve quality of life? Maybe. What if I had five users who were on board with, with the technology? How many more patients' lives could I improve? And so on and so forth. So, you know, of course, there is a balance here. You you want to make sure that you get enough voices into the process from a usability standpoint. It's impossible to try to get every voice. But when you embrace the concept of usability, it, it, my experience anyway, is that it doesn't necessarily lead you towards consensus per se, but it certainly identifies the major opportunities that you have when you engage in full-on development. Yeah, and if you're doing usability, you know, and you you really want to understand who your user groups are again, and so, and like what the differences are between those user groups. So maybe you have three different types of user groups. Um, one's physicians, one's, you know, some sort of technician or specialist, and then one's like a home user. And those three different groups have different levels of understanding and perception. And so if you have a device that's spanning across multiple different types of users, you want to make sure that you get the input of all of those users and you're testing it in all of those users. Because if you get, if you're targeting and you only test it in physicians, say when this person takes the device home with them, a lay user, they might not understand how to use the device because they don't have the same sort of education. They're not used to using the same types of devices as a physician may. And so then you run into the risk of having, you know, complaints or adverse effects associated with the device because the the person that you're, you know, one of your user groups, you haven't actually tested it in that user group and you haven't mitigated that. And that could run into problems when you're in the marketplace and nobody wants that. Nobody wants to do recalls or have to do reporting and things of that nature. So addressing this earlier on is always the best, you know, thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we touched on risk a little bit. Might be worth diving into that a little bit. And 
you know, try to give some people some tips and pointers on how to navigate this and how to, you know, if you think about, um, I'll go back to the, the point I was making earlier, design controls, risk, and usability. Some people may see these as completely separate things. And yeah, there is a Venn diagram, they all overlap, but what if they were all the same thing? What if, what if it was all um, just slightly different words, more or less used to describe the same overall process? Wouldn't that be appealing, especially if yep. you, you know that you understand the voice of the user and all the different user groups, you have a you're, you're kind of an understanding of the risk and that sort of thing, and, and you use that to inform your design. So what are some things that you've seen go well when companies embrace you know, a kind of a risk-based approach and usability? How does that go well during the design development process? Yeah, so if you start off your design and development process, usually going through your risk, you are essentially designing a device to mitigate those risks, right? I mean, and meet its intended use, but in doing so, you want to make sure that all of your testing ensures that whatever risk you've identified, you've mitigated that through design or alarms or, you know, labeling or something. And so when you're talking about usability, um, going through and, um, you know, understanding your user and going through like a task analysis for that user, one, it could help you identify places that might not, that you maybe thought were intuitive when you go through the structured list. Um, you know, you thought they were intuitive originally, but you're going through this list and you're like, well, actually, this step is kind of confusing and extraneous. Um, and so maybe you can design that out of there, even just you going through the list. But the other thing is when you go through a task analysis and go through all of the individual tasks, you can figure out where where is this, you know, I mentioned before, a place where there could be a critical risk associated with a user error. And how do I go in and design the, that risk out of, you know, the, the user's um, control? Um, so that this user error can't happen. Is it through something I do to change the design completely? Or is it through like, hey, if they push this button and the alarm comes up to sort of mitigate that risk early on to avoid these problems in the future? Um, and again, this is all part of, you know, your design process. Like you were saying, this should all go sort of hand in hand because from the FDA's perspective and from, you know, the EU's perspective and I just internationally in general, everyone's sort of going to this risk-based approach for almost everything. Um, you know, there's risk-based approach for quality management systems, which obviously involves design control. You want to talk about your benefit risk analysis in your regulatory and with your intended use and your market and your patient population. Even for like clinical trials, there's risk-based monitoring. So everything's sort of focused around this risk area. And so when you're designing the device, you want to mitigate your risk as much as possible so that your benefit risk analysis, when you go to the regulatory agencies, is really in favor of benefit, that you've knocked out all of these potential risks through design or alarms, and that you've really considered all of them, and that your user is able to use the device without harming themselves or someone else. Yeah, absolutely. Again, what we're trying to do is really mitigate risk. We're trying to introduce products that are safe. We're trying to introduce products that are effective and solve clinical needs. And, and uh, you know, I keep going back to this, but we're trying to improve lives, improve the quality of lives. So it's really, really important to use that as a framework. So let's get into maybe a little bit of the weeds. I mean, usability is, I guess, a formal practice, if you will. There are certain expectations uh, that I think are good to understand, not just, you know, from a compliance or from a checkbox perspective, but I think it is important to understand what these ex expectations are 
and a little bit of, of color around why these these certain things are important. So do you mind maybe elaborating a little bit on uh, usability testing and, and the types of activities that, that one should embrace uh, in medical device yeah. development? So um, the, the one thing that is absolutely required usually is that you at least discuss your usability through your user's analysis in your submission, whatever submission type it may be. And which type of usability testing you have to do is based upon that use risk analysis. So you do your risk assessment. If you have no critical tasks with your device, then your usability testing can be pretty lean. If you have a high-risk device, you're going to have to do more usability testing. As a sort of flat foundation, FDA requires you know 15 users. That's their typical amount of users that they want to see. Really high-risk devices with 15 users of each user group. Let me specify that, not 15 users total, because I find that people um, sometimes get those concepts confused. But if you know you have a really high risk device, they may require that you use more users. But again, if you have no critical tasks, they might let you use less users. Um, the usability testing is really strongly based upon risk again. And so the amount of testing and the types of testing and the specific tasks that are associated with that are based upon your, your risk. So typically with usability testing, what you would do is you get, let's just go to standard case, 15 users of each user group your user groups will depend on, you know, how you define those user groups will depend on on their level of education, maybe their physical stamina, you know, are they um, elderly and going to have trouble pushing down on a plunger really hard or something? Um, are they, you know, impaired in any kind of way you want to consider that? Um, do they have any sort of medical conditions um, that could cause use errors or make the use situation different? So you want to go through um, you know, a list of different things that are, you know, part of each user group so that you can really clearly define who your user groups are. Then you want 15 users of each user group standard. And then what you do is there's different types of usability testing that you can do. Um, typically, a lot of people do what is called simulated use testing. And so essentially, you set up an environment that mimics what the real world environment would be. So if you're, you know, your device works in a doctor's office, you want to make sure that the lighting, like the lux of the lighting mimics that of a doctor's office. It's not too bright, it's not too dim, so that you're covering what would normally be seen in practice. You want ambient noise around. Um, you can do that through a recording or you can go into a real doctor's office and, you know, isolate a room out of there. Um, but you want to make sure that the, the environment mimics what would be in real life, that you have the number of distractions that would actually be there in real life so that the types of things, you know, distractions could cause a user error and you want to know what that user error is. Um, and then when you do simulated use testing, um, you as a company, you cannot help who your representative users are throughout the testing. So you give them whatever labeling, you know, and instructions for use or training, if you have training associated with your device, that would be done in practice. But other than that, you can't answer questions for them. You want them to work through how they would do working the device in the real world so that it's representative of what would occur in the real world so that you're able to see where there are gaps or lack of understanding or some task is taking a lot longer than you anticipated. So that's the type of, you know, standard usability testing that there is that people do for um, their submissions. There's obviously lots of different testing that can occur before that, that should occur before that. 
um, and that I think a lot of people do, but they just don't actually document. You know, I just um, I realized that we've been uh, we just dove in and we've been just going crazy on the topic of usability, which is good. And and I want to bring us home and wrap things up here in a few moments. But in the meantime, I want to remind folks that I am talking with Isabella Schmidt. She is a regulatory affairs consultant, Proxima Clinical Research. You need to check out what Proxima is doing. And I would encourage you to go to their website at Proxima cro.com p-r-o-x-i-m-a-c-r-o.com and um, you know why proxima well proxima works with emerging companies and they provide regulatory consulting and clinical research solutions and they work with companies of all shapes and sizes but really you know as if you've listened in been listening to this episode and any other uh, episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast where Isabella has been a guest uh, I'm sure you've picked up by now how passionate she is about these topics of usability and regulatory and and EUMDR and all these sorts of things. So she knows her stuff. So I would encourage you to to contact them to learn more. And while we're at it, uh, might as well remind you as well that uh, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help, uh, especially as you're going through design and development, risk, usability. We're pros at this. This is what we do for a living. We've built a medical device QMS software solution specifically for medical device professionals. And within that platform are workflows to help you manage all of these activities on a single source of truth where you and your team can collaborate and iterate and review and approve and test and all these sorts of things. So if you're active in medical device product development, you're going to want to know more about the Greenlight Guru solution. So go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about how we can help you. All right. So let's, I guess, bring it home, so to speak, Isabella. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of things usability related. I always pick up and learn something from all of these uh, conversations that you and I have. I guess tips uh, might be a good way to, to lean, but Sometimes, unfortunately, we have some examples of things that didn't go so well. And sometimes those we can use those to our benefit to inform us of, of better ways to do things. So do you have some uh, uh, usability issues that, that you've seen or some challenges that, that you've seen companies uh, are faced with? Yeah, if they wait too late to do usability, and I probably have said this or covered this a little bit already, they wait too late to do usability and they just do the summative evaluation because they're you know, designing in a whole. And let me um, chime, in, chime so, in there. I think um, to, to, not to cut you off, but I, I think that's a really key point because a lot of people have the, excuse the expression, the oh shit moment where maybe they're about to do a regulatory submission. They're like, oh crap, I didn't, I didn't do my usability stuff, so I better hurry up and do it. So they're, they're treating it like a checkbox activity. I mean, is that right. really what you're after yeah. here? Yeah. And so w- when they just wait as their checkbox activity, I think that's a good way of putting it. They do their summative evaluation, done no usability testing beforehand, and they get to the summative evaluation and there are these user errors that they didn't anticipate. And then you're at design for you think you're about to submit and this is your final device. And there are all these user errors or even one you know, major user error. And then you have to go back and redesign it. And that just shifts your timeline entirely from your submission and you know, lots of additional resources and expense that you have to go in. And God forbid that you have to go back and change something major, which makes you have to do additional testing like 
you know, animal testing or something like that, or biocompatibility testing, that that could be a major misstep. So I, you know, doing this really early on to make sure that you've contacted your user, you're making something they want, you're making something that they can use that is intuitive to them, that doesn't cause a lot of errors that could harm them or the or you know the patient that they may be using this device with is really important not only for you know safety but also for from a business standpoint for your timelines um, and your expectations to whatever stakeholders that you may have on, regarding those timelines. You designed a device that ultimately failed the summative evaluation. You added to your timeline, and then you know one would question, um, maybe, do you know what you're doing? Um, that type of thing. So I think, you know, getting, doing usability early on um, is, is always good. Um, FDA actually has a really great guidance on usability, and it goes through some of the types of testing that, you know, typically occurs that obviously is voluntary, but you should do. Um, and so I would encourage people to take a look at that guidance um, because it's, it's very helpful um, to understand the types of testing that are already out there. And you might already be doing some, and maybe you just bring them in the context of usability testing. All right. Terrific advice and tips and pointers. Anything else that you want to leave the audience with before we wrap up today's episode? I would just say, do it early, do it right. Don't try to cut corners with usability. And folks, if you want to know how to do it early, do it right, and not cut corners, contact Isabella Schmidt with Proxima. And uh, she'd be happy to help give you some tips and pointers and, and be a resource to make sure you, you do the right thing at the right time for the benefit of your overall design and development. So again, I want to thank Isabella Schmidt for being uh, the guest on uh, the Global Medical Device Podcast today. Folks, once again, uh, hopefully you've been a longtime listener. And if so, thank you very much. If this is your first episode, there's well over 100 episodes that you need to catch up on and um, be sure you continue to share uh, news about the global medical device podcast with your friends and colleagues. Uh, and if there's something that you want us to talk about, send us a note. We'd be happy to, to take your suggestions and um, always want to bring you some exciting, meaningful in the trenches topics that are going to help you improve as a medical device professional. So thank you so much for that. As always, if there's anything we can do to help you at or in your quest to bring new products to market and, and to maintain those products once they get to market, Greenlight Guru, this is what we do for a living. We have a medical device QMS to help you manage all of your product and your SOP and risk data and information pre and post market. And um, we're happy to help. We have medical device experts, gurus who are on staff, ready to be uh, a source to help you as well. So go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more and uh, be happy to have a conversation to see what we can do to help. As always, uh, this is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.